0: I love that video. Uh, To be honest, I was not ready for Rambo to make his appearance in a video on Easter weekend. But I love that video. I love that visual. I love fiction, movies, uh, song lyrics that take you there, that put you in the shoes of people in history, people in biblical history, and it makes you think, what would I notice? What would I take in? What would my first impression be? What would I look at first? What would I perceive If I'm in their shoes. And this Easter weekend, I would contend that in the blur of adrenaline, in the blur of excitement arriving at that tomb, as you notice the folded sheet, as you notice the open door and Jesus isn't there, that that God would want us to notice that God would want us to take note of the large rolled stone. But to fully appreciate the significance of a large rolled stone on Easter, we have to take a hard left turn in the pages of our Bible to a place called Gilgal, which literally means to roll. And I want to start in the book of Micah. No, I didn't mispronounce Matthew or Mark where you would expect to go on Easter weekend. The the Old Testament book of Micah, chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. It says in this passage, God is speaking. He says, oh, my people, what have I done to you? What have I done to make you tired of me? Answer me for I brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you from slavery. I sent Moses, Aaron, and Miriam to help you. Don't you remember, my people, how King Balak of Moab tried to have you cursed and how Balaam, son of Beor, blessed you instead? And remember your journey from Acacia Grove to Gilgal when I, the Lord, did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness. If this is your first time ever setting foot in a church, or you've never opened a Bible, chances are you've still heard about Moses, you've still heard about the Exodus, thanks to Disney, thanks to Charlton Heston, thanks to Ridley Scott, who have made us a trio of of cinema to take in the Exodus story. And maybe if you've been in church, you're a little familiar with the story of Balaam, and when he rode his donkey, and Balak had sent him to curse the Israelites, but he blessed them instead. But chances are that Acacia Grove and Gilgal, these are locations that may leave us scratching our head. Yet God's prophet says in this passage, hey, we shouldn't forget it. We should remember it because it's a picture of God's faithfulness. And there's two words I want to look at just in that verse just quickly. And the first is faithfulness. You know, Easter is a season for hymns and reflecting on hymns. And man, two of my favorites are Jesus paid it all. How great the father's love for us. But one of my favorite all-time hymns is, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And one of the key lines in the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, is, As thou hast been, thou forever will be. That there is the foundation of our faith. That our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The foundation of our faith is not based on our performance, so we don't have a a good day faith and a bad day faith. Woke up on the right side of the bed faith, and then I woke up on the wrong side of the bed faith. Because our faith isn't based on our performance. It's, It's based on the work Christ performed at the cross. That nothing can change. Nothing can take away from it. Nothing needs to be added to it. And so we sing, great is thy faithfulness. But if I'm honest, I could also say, it's not part of the song, but I could say, man, great is my forgetfulness. Because my memory springs leaks. That's why the the second word in this passage that we have to take note of is remember. It's a command that's said again and again throughout the Bible. In passages like Deuteronomy, the last book of the Torah, where Moses said, hey, we just got out of Egypt. We just took this journey. And he says to the Israelites, he says, watch out. Be careful never to forget what you yourself have seen. Do not let these memories escape from your mind as long as you live. And be sure to pass them on to your children. Then as you read through the Bible, you get to Psalms. And one of the key themes in the book of Psalms is this idea of remembering. It probably reaches its peak, you could argue, in Psalm 103 where David says, may I never forget the good things he does for me. He lists them all, forgiveness, healing, redemption, filling me with good things, and on and on. Then you get to the Gospels. You get to the teachings of Jesus. And as he's about to leave the disciples before Easter, he talks about the Holy Spirit. And he says in John 14, 26, he speaks of the Holy Spirit, and he says that he will teach you all things. And he will cause you to recall, will remind you of, bring to your remembrance everything I've told you. Because what goes in our minds often determines where we go in our lives. How many of you guys saw the movie a few years ago, Inside Out? One of my favorite animated movies, I'll probably show it to Titus Shivraj when he gets old enough because it teaches you about emotions. It teaches you to understand what you're feeling and and, and understand our feelings and communicate that clearly. But then also one of the the issues in the movie is that your core memories, Riley's core memories in that movie, they make her who she is. And, And a core lesson in the movie is that what we remember defines who we are and what we do. There's an element of use it or lose it where if you don't bring it to memory, you'll you'll eventually forget it. Our brains are designed this way to get rid of long-term memories every now and again. And it's such a great movie because it parallels the research and the teaching of so many scientists, researchers, and professors. There's a professor, Stephen Rose, who's a leader in brain and behavior research. and, And he said that I think that memory is the most extraordinary feature of being a human. It defines our individual, individuality, it defines who we are. It makes us because it shapes our autobiography. That is why the progressive loss of memory is so terrifying. To see a person actually slipping into the non-awareness of who they are is a saddening thing, and it tells us the importance of memory. Again, what we remember defines in our lives who we see ourselves as, who we are and what we do. Where the mind goes, the man goes. Where the mind goes, the woman goes. So why is it in life that I seem to remember what I should forget, and I so often forget what I should remember? I used to be a youth pastor, and I developed a habit at one point where I would come up to the pulpit, and and, and I might have some, some prizes, some Snickers bars, whatever, but I would ask the students, hey, what did we talk about last week to review? Some of my champions, right, were the note takers who would just be like, well, give me a second. I can find it in my notes. But if they weren't there, that got depressing fast. I stopped that habit fast, because you just get blank stares and you realize we forget so much. A week, they probably can't even remember what they were taught in school yesterday, right? Maybe not that bad. But you realize memory springs leaks. I, I would think myself, man, do I remember what Pastor Fred spoke last week? And I did better than they did, let me put it that way. I took notes, note takers are history makers. Put that down, but check it out. Anytime anybody mentions Philadelphia, I have a, a buddy who just moved there, or moved close to there and he was in there, Anytime you mention that city, what comes to mind? West Philadelphia, born and raised. Exactly. We could go for two and a half minutes, go through the entire song word for word because we all have it memorized. And you think about the stuff we have memorized that over the course of life is largely insignificant. And yet I've got all these old hip-hop lyrics in my head and I struggle to memorize the Psalms or Bible verses. Why is that? Why do I remember what I seem to should forget and forget what I should remember? Because what we commit to memory, what we determine to remember, it shapes who we are. Where the mind goes, the man goes and the woman goes. And I love that the last line in that video we just watched is, may we remember and follow the risen way. You know, the early church after Easter, it took on the name The Way, and this wasn't from, like, some creative team meeting where they were trying to come up with a a hip name for their church. It harkens back, and it it remembers, it recalls memories of Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 4, where it says, the prophet Isaiah says, clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Fill in the valleys, level the mountains and hills. God in this passage was once again going to lead his people through a pathless wilderness and a gracious act of redemption. Just as he had done before, taking the Israelites out of Egypt, he was going to do it again. He could do it again. He takes valleys and mountains and other impediments and makes them monuments to his faithfulness. You know, at the completion of the Exodus, again, in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses tells the Israelites again and again, hey, remember what just happened. Teach your children. Because what they remembered would determine who they were and what they would do when they stepped into the promised land. If they would forget God and his faithfulness, they would forget their story. If they would forget their story, one of bondage to freedom, they may find themselves in an all new kind of bondage. Bondage that isn't just about slavery, but bondage that's about your soul. You know, we can relate because there's an Egypt that we're all born into. There's an Egypt we all need deliverance from. Slavery to sin. A gap between our brokenness and God's holiness, a valley that could only be filled by Jesus's sacrifice and his blood. See, God longs to fill the valleys. God longs to move the mountains through Scripture, throughout history and through our lives. He again and again turns our monuments, excuse me, he turns our impediments into our monuments. I would watch Planet Earth. I've shared this already. Uh, We worked our way through the entire first series. I say we Raj and I, right? It's just my excuse to watch Planet Earth again. I'm just telling myself it's his education. Even if he can't understand what they're saying, man, he just, he sees these visuals and is just grasped by them, like can't look away. And one of the most powerful ones is uh, the second episode is mountains. So there's just all these panoramic views of, of mountains. And at, at one point, I'm going somewhere with this. At one point, there's bears pulling through the rocks, eating moths. Who knew bears eat moths? I didn't. But then it pulls back slowly but surely from the Rockies mountains. And so you can't even see the bear anymore, and it's just this huge view of the mountains. And and, and the picture is amazing, but what he said, it struck me as I was feeding Raj and watching this. The narrator says, another battle is being waged here, but on a much longer time scale. These loose boulders are the mountain's crumbling bones. The Rockies are no longer rising, but slowly disintegrating. All mountains everywhere are being worn down by frost, snow, and ice. Some are still being pushed up by the crust of the earth if we're going to get scientific. But every mountain and the Rockies themselves are being eroded. They're slowly being moved. A battle is being won, and it's one we don't perceive with the naked eye. It's one I wasn't even aware of until I watched planet Earth. But John Piper, who's a pastor, he once put it this way. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. Sometimes God moves mountains in three days like he did in Easter. Sometimes it takes three years. Sometimes it takes three generations. You know, for Raj to get here, it, it took a little over three years. It took four years. And after three years, it seemed like the dream that we had took a mean uppercut because we got an email that said, hey, Ethiopia is all but shutting down international adoption. You're not going to see a referral till at least 2020 with a trend of increasing. And that was it. That was the end of the email. But then we got a second email that, that uh, told us to switch to India, and, and from there it just snowballed. But what was so powerful is the prayers that were prayed. Like I remember a life group, I was sitting in the corner with Paul Birch and Dustin Stellman, and we had switched to the India program, but things were just putting along as usual, where it's just, what is, when is this going to come to fruition? And, and I remember they prayed, man, let them see a referral soon, a name, a picture. 20, less than 24 hours later, the next day, we got a referral with Titus Shivraj's picture and I'll always remember that 24 hours before that, we had prayed for that. And then when we started to plan for traveling to India, we, we were told at the beginning of this year that we'd probably travel in the summer, somewhere between May and June. So we all applied for visas, and Steph got royally screwed up, where hers was super short and was going to expire long before we would ever travel to India. It was going to be a major headache, so obviously we weren't super happy about that. And I would joke, you know, maybe God wants us to go there before the visa expires. And she would just, you know, cut her eyes at me. <laughs> but Marina Laterno, right, at a life group, prayed it in faith. God, let this, this visa situation just be indicative of your will. Get them over there before the visa expires. And that same week, before a week had expired, we got a call and said, hey, you're not traveling in a matter of months. You're not traveling in a matter of weeks. You're traveling in a matter of days. They give us 10 days. <laughs> so we went from, oh, man, it's going to take forever, to can we do this, this fast, right? And it was the hand of God, and it was, again, a reminder to me, man, the power of prayer. God is always doing 10,000 things on our behalf, and we're maybe aware of three of them. And prayer, I mean, that's a, another sermon for another day. That's in another entire series for another time. But I believe the, the power of prayer is not making God aware of something. The book of Matthew, Jesus said, hey, he knows what you're going to pray before you even pray it. So, so why pray? Well, I believe one reason it's become because we become aware of how God is moving. It plugs us in to his plans. There's 10,000 things that he's doing on our behalf, and prayer helps us to realize more than just a couple, more than just two or three. William Temple once said, when I pray, coincidences happen. When I don't, they don't. <laughs> God, again and again, he's turning our impediments into monuments. This visa that seemed like it got screwed up, that was a huge impediment to getting our son, all of a sudden we look back and it's a monument to his faithfulness. He loves, though, when we're mindful of the work he's doing. And I believe prayer helps us be aware of that. You talk about monuments and memorials. How many of you guys have been to D.C. and you've seen the World War II memorial? I think Steph and I probably went there last year and I saw it for the first time. These memorials, of, of, of huge memorials of stone that just harken back to that time and the sacrifices that were made. And as I was there, I recalled there's a story, uh, Ravi Zacharias, who's now like, my champion, because he's from India, like he, Roger's going to have posters in his bedroom of this guy, right? If I can find him. But in, w- in one of his blogs, he, he tells a story from World War II that, that speaks to what we're talking about now. This is Ravi's words. He says, in the book Finding Your Way, Gary Laferla tells an amazing story. Gleaned from the records of the United States Naval Institute following the Second World War. The USS Astoria engaged the Japanese during the battle for Savo Island before any other ships from the U.S. Naval Fleet arrived. During the crucial night of the battle, August 8th, the ship scored several direct hits on a Japanese vessel, but was itself badly damaged and sank the next day. Here's how Laferla tells the rest of the story. About 0, 0200 hours, a young West Midwesterner, signalman third class Elgin Staples, was swept overboard by the blast when the Astoria's number one eight-inch gun turret exploded. Wounded in both legs by shrapnel and semi-shocked he was kept afloat by a narrow life belt that he managed to activate with a simple trigger mechanism. At around 0600 hours, Staples was rescued by a passing destroyer and returned to the Astoria, whose captain was attempting to save the cruiser by beaching her. The effort failed, and Staples, still wearing the same life belt, found himself back in the water. It was lunchtime. Picked up again, this time by the USS President Jackson, he was one of 500 survivors of the battle who were evacuated to Numa. On board the transport, Staples hugged that life belt with gratitude, looked at the small piece of equipment for the first time. He scrutinized every stitch of the life belt that had served him so well. It had been manufactured by Firestone Tire and Rubber Company of Akron, Ohio, and bore a registration number. Given home leave, Staples told his story and asked his mother, who worked for Firestone, about the purpose of the number on the belt. She replied that the company insisted on personal responsibility for the war effort, and that the number was unique and assigned to only one inspector. Staples remembered everything about the life belt and quoted the number. There was a moment of stunned silence in the room, and then his mother spoke. That was my personal code that I affixed to every item I was responsible for approving. Can you imagine? We talk about being in somebody's shoes, being in that man's shoes when he comes to that realization that this was the connection that he never even knew about. His mother made the product that saved him, not once, but twice. And I'm convinced that there will be so many realizations when we finally get to heaven where we went through hell and yet we'll have a conversation, be it with somebody we see there or or God himself, and we'll realize that while we were going through hell, God was working throughout moving mountains and working on our behalf in 10,000 ways that we may be aware of or not. You know, there are monuments and memorials made of stone but then there are monuments and memorials that people lived through, real lives, experienced in real life. Now, for the Israelites in the Old Testament, one of those experiences was the Red Sea. God was visibly present, moving on their behalf, as they were trapped with the Red Sea on one side, Pharaoh's men pursuing them on the other, between this rock and a hard place. And then it says in Ephesians fifteen five, after God had delivered the Israelites through the Red Sea, that the deep waters had covered them, Pharaoh's men, and they sank to the depths like a stone. They were proverbial memorial stones in the middle of the Red Sea. But out of sight and out of mind, Israel would forget what God had done. Moses and the Exodus, it's a part of the prophet Micah's passage that we opened with. But also in that passage, Micah talks about, again, God's lesson in faithfulness in going from Acacia Grove to Gilgal. Now, Acacia Grove is significant first because in Numbers 25, it's where we see Israel, not for the first time and not for the last time, forget God and step into idol worship. Not for the first, not for the last time, they'd forgotten what God had done for them. And Acacia Grove, though, is also significant because it's the last place the Israelites camped before crossing the Jordan River into the promised land. Once again, there was a body of water standing between the Israelites and God's promises. The Red Sea and their deliverance from Egypt had become the Jordan River and their deliverance into the promised land. And again, at the Red Sea, Israelites' pursuers sank to the depths like a stone. God took these impediments and made monuments, but it was, again, out of sight. So at the Jordan River, God tells them to do something beyond just crossing. I want to read from Joshua. It's chapter 4. I want to read verses I'm read verses 1 through 9. It says, When all the people had crossed the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Now choose twelve men, one from each tribe. Tell them, Take twelve stones from the very place where the priests are standing in the middle of the Jordan. Carry them out and pile them up at the place where you will camp tonight. So Joshua called together the twelve men he had chosen, one from each of the tribes of Israel. He told them, Go into the middle of the Jordan In front of the ark of the Lord your God, each of you must pick up one stone and carry it on your shoulder. Twelve stones in all, one for each of the twelve tribes of Israel. We will use these stones to build a memorial. In the future, your children will ask you, what do these stones mean? Then you can tell them. They remind us that the Jordan River stopped flowing when the ark of the Lord's covenant went across. These stones will stand as a memorial among the people of Israel forever. So the men did as Joshua had commanded them. They took 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan River, one for each tribe, just as the Lord had told Joshua. They carried them to the place where they camped for the night and constructed the memorial there. Joshua also set up another pile of 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan at the place where the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant were standing, and they are there to this day. So God commands that 12 stones be taken from the Jordan River where the Ark of the Covenant was, and they be put together in a memorial. This visual reminder that the Israelites could look to of God's faithfulness. But I love that Joshua takes it a step further. He connects the dot. He sees God took us across the Red Sea and he's done it again. So again, there's going to be a memorial in the water that Joshua builds. But then as we keep going, in Joshua chapter 5 verse 9 is the key verse today. It says, then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the shame of your slavery in Egypt. So that place has been called Gilgal to roll to this day. Gilgal means to roll. God had rolled away their shame. The immovable had been moved. Not just a body of water, but the weight of guilt. And Joshua said, hey, be ready for when people ask you, hey, what do these stones mean? And you can tell them these stones are to be a memorial for Israel forever to God's faithfulness. That turns impediments into monuments. The Israelites, however, as you read from Joshua onward, would again forget God. We, we were in a series not long ago that looked at the book of Judges, the book right after Joshua, where the Israelites, one generation later, do a 180 and begin to again forsake God. And it says in, in Judges 2, an angel came to rebuke them. Where did it come from? It came from Gilgal. And then as we keep reading in the Old Testament, Saul is put in as the first king under the authority of God to rule God's people under God's authority. And it's at Gilgal where he not once but twice forsakes God's commands and rejects God as king. A key verse in that entire passage is that, hey, Saul set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. He set up a monument for himself and then went to the place where they were supposed to remember God's faithfulness. He set himself up as Israel's deliverer, but no man could deliver Israel. And and that hope and that deliverance, it wouldn't be found in other imagined gods or idols either. And yet they tried. Both the prophets Hosea and Amos would rebuke the Israelites for their idol worship at Gilgal. So Gilgal was a place of memorial and memories. It was meant to be a place where the Israelites would remember God rolled away their shame. But instead it became a reminder of guilt, brokenness, and shame. You know, maybe that's where your mind often drifts, past failings, your failed performance. And where your mind goes, you find yourself going, returning to it again and again. But God would say to you tonight, shift your focus. I'm still faithful. I still roll stones of shame. I love that Micah gets the last word on Gilgal in the Bible. And he says, remember, I did everything I could to teach you about my faithfulness. The lesson of God's faithfulness is, hey, I rolled away your shame. And just like he rolled away the shame of the Israelites coming out of Egypt, he could roll away our shame again. Now, that sounds simple, sounds like Bible 101, but living it isn't. You know, sometimes we understand that we need to be taught. We need to learn new things. We need to come to new knowledge and revelation, and that's ingrained into us as we grow up. But sometimes our problem isn't that we need to learn more. Sometimes our problem is that we need to act on what we already know. Sometimes our problem is that the core memories that God wants to shape our identity, the things that he wants us to remember, the wrong things are fueling us. The wrong things are fueling who we are and what we do. And Easter is a reminder that at the core of our mind and our heart and our being should be the cross, an empty tomb, and a stone that was rolled away. Monuments and memorials to God's faithfulness. I mean, think for a second about this Christian monument that we celebrate, right? The cross. We wear it, we celebrate it. There's one built less than a mile from my home that's larger than life on Taylor Road. And the same way that Joshua said, hey, when somebody asks you, what do these stones mean to you? We should know, hey, what what does the cross mean to you? And we should be able to answer that question because on surface level, it's pretty creepy, right? We should be able to answer uh, Michael W. Smith's old question, why do you wear your cross of gold, right? We should be, if you don't know, don't worry. But there should be a good explanation. Because, on the, again, on the surface level, this is an instrument of torture, one of the worst instruments of torture ever concocted, and we wear it. I put it on every day and champion it. Why? Because we see God on the highest scale turn an impediment into a monument. The instrument of torture and death, one of the worst ever made by men, turned into a monument to salvation and life. Come on, what can he not transform and turn on its head in our life? You know, in the same way, there was a stone in front of the grave, and it wasn't enough to the Romans that this, this stone likely weighed, according to historians, well over a ton, 2,500 pounds or more. They they wanted to impede anyone from moving it, so they sealed it. They put guards in front of it. And just as the cross now has meaning, because it was an impediment turned into a monument, so has that large rolling stone. And you know, Joshua didn't just make a a monument of various stones at Gilgal, he too wielded a large and weighty stone. At the end of his leadership, at the end of the book of Joshua, in Joshua 24, he renews the covenant with the Israelites. And I think it's remarkable that as he's talking to the Israelites, he hits on the exact same things that Micah did. He hits on Moses and the Exodus, he hits on Balak and Balaam, but then it says to seal the covenant as a reminder of their agreement, he took a huge stone and rolled it beneath the terebinth tree beside the tabernacle of the Lord. See, no matter what various stones we have in our life, personal monuments and memories, moments of deliverance and redemption and answered prayers, small stones to God's faithfulness that we find throughout our story that point to God. We all, whether we remember the little stones or not, whether we're mindful of the ways God has moved in little ways or not, we all have one large stone that was rolled and repositioned. And that one large stone at the grave of Jesus Christ, it speaks forever to God's grace. At Gilgal, it says that God had rolled away the shame of Egypt, right? But God rolled away our shame at Easter. We should be mindful of it. We should never forget it, that we have a rolled stone. It rolled away the penalty of, of death. It rolled away shame. It rolled away uh, the penalty of sin. And in light of that, we should memorize grace. I don't remember who said it. I just remember I heard it once and it's been something I'll never forget that we need to memorize grace. Some define grace as unmerited favor. It's a good definition. The things we get that we don't deserve. But grace is powerful and profound, not just for what it gives us, but for what it takes away. At the cross, God doesn't just give us life. He takes away our shame. He rolls our shame away. You know, again, human memory, it's meant to discard some things. As we get older, our long-term memory just gets rid of stuff. I love that in Inside Out, they're called mind workers, the playoff mind workers. Again, that movie's great. I'll go watch it now that I'm talking about it. But the Holy Spirit, again, who Jesus talks about throughout the Gospels and in that verse in John, it reminds us to discard shame, to get rid of shame, and to store grace and righteousness. But what the enemy our accuser would love, and he tells us to do, is to store up shame to discard grace because you've been disgraced. And as we talk about the brain and as we talk about things that we forget, we got to remember that just because you don't remember something doesn't mean it didn't happen. I have three siblings. They remember some stuff I did in my youth, and I'm like, I forgot about that. Let's go ahead and forget that altogether, right? But just because I don't remember it doesn't mean that it didn't happen. Just because you've forgotten something doesn't mean that God has. You know, because of the cross and because of what Jesus did through the cross and the grave, when when God sees us, he sees his son. And when he sees his son, he sees the blood of his son. And he sees the covenant and he sees the covenant promises that he's made to us. And because of what he remembers, what God remembers determines what he does. He extends grace to us. And again, in the same way, what you remember determines who you are and what you do in life. As it was with the Israelites, it's the same with us. And for us, it's not just about me, myself, and I. It's not just about my faith. It's about the impact your faith can have on other people around you when you step in bold assurance. Again, I love that video we started with. It matches scripture in the fact that John outran Peter to the tomb. Now, that video kind of gives Peter an excuse because he stopped, right? But John beats Peter in scripture to the tomb, but John stops at the entrance to the tomb, but Peter runs right in, because Peter had felt conviction, as it showed in that video, he had forsaken or rejected or said he denied Christ three times. But conviction is not like this stiff arm to stay away from Jesus. It's in, conviction is an invitation to come to Jesus, to come to grace. So Peter runs right into the tomb. He accepted his invitation. He let God roll away his shame. Where shame crippled Judas and Judas takes his own life, Peter let God roll his shame away. And he became the spark, uh, the apostles that sparked what would become known as the way. You know, we too have an option to stand in hope. We too, like Peter and John on that day, we stand on the other side of an empty tomb with a rolled stone where Jesus conquered sin and rolled away our shame. You know, we the church, we're an Easter people. We should operate and, and, and live in light of the present risenness of Jesus Christ. We should be defined by Easter, this rolling stone that revealed an empty tomb. God says, remember that grace. Memorize that grace. Never let it leave you, because what you remember defines who you are and what you'll do. May we be an Easter people that lives a life defined by Easter, who live a a, a faith and boldness that comes from the assurance that what Jesus did, on the cross, what Jesus did in that tomb beating death, again, nothing can take away from that. Nothing needs to be added to that. And, and we can live in that assurance. You know, I'm going to go to church tomorrow because every once in a while I need to just sit in the service, worship, receive the word. And, and I'm going to be reminded by some pastor of the truth of Easter, the significance of Easter, the, the, the repercussions of what happened on Easter because I need that reminder. We all need that reminder. I love that Peter says in his epistle, I'm always going to remind you of these things because you need to hear it again and again because our memories spring leaks. But the question is, will we remember? The reason I'm preaching this message tonight is will we remember on Monday, on Wednesday, next week, next month, will we remember when shame comes knocking again, when our faith is floundering, when we come across a mountain right in the middle of our path, will we remember the hope we have? Will we remember when we stumble that that, that conviction is an invitation? Condemnation and sh- shame is a feeling. Guilt, come on, that's a fact. Shame is a feeling that God wants to roll away. If I could have the, the worship team come up, I want to I close with this. The, the Jews have a tradition Come on, we're talking about the grave of Jesus Christ. They have a tradition. They will put stones on graves. That's what they do. Our culture, we put flowers on graves. The Jews, they put stones on graves. And I was looking up, like, why do they do that? And there's so many explanations. But I just want to hit on two. There's two explanations for why they do this. The first is that flowers will die. A stone won't die. It speaks to the permanence of memory, Speaks to the permanence of legacy. Again, some memories, they get dumped from long-term storage. But a stone says, hey, I'm never going to forget you. I'm never going to forget what you did for me, who you were to me. And like memorials made from stones, the memories of that person will never die. When well, we're all going to take a stone in our hand tonight. And, and I want the memories of Christ and what he did to never fade for us. The second reason that that speaks to tonight is that the Hebrew word for pebble is the same word that they use for bond. See, grace opens the door to a special bond with God, a relationship with God. Now, shame would tell us that, hey, that door has been closed. Again, that you've been disgraced. That very word disgrace, you talk about grace, grace has been cut off. That's what the prefix dis means. But grace opened a tomb and grace opened a door to a bond that can't be severed a door that can't be shut, a stone that can't be rolled back once Jesus rolled it away. I love what it it says in Romans 8. It gives us this assurance. Now, there are some people that will hear the invitation, that will see the empty tomb, but they won't step into that invitation foolishly. But for those that do, we can cling to Romans 8, 38, where Paul says, I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from Christ's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Jesus Christ our Lord. Come on. Will we remember that? When shame would tell us, hey, you've been disgraced, that we walk in that assurance on Monday, Wednesday, next week, next month. What we remember will de- define who we are and what we do in life. So again, tonight as we close and as we go back into worship, I want us to take a stone. There's no super deep significance to this. Maybe you'll hold on to it for Easter weekend. Maybe you'll hold on to it for years. I don't know. But for many of us in our, in our grappling with sin and shame, it may simply signify the grace of God that we need to remember. The bond that can't be broken. The permanence of what Jesus did and who he means to us as Savior can't be taken from us, can't be added to us. This is grace and mercy, as it says in Psalm 23, follows us all the days of our life. For others, maybe the, the, the longer I've preached, the more uh, memories you have of God's faithfulness. Maybe you've just been in a rough season. You've been going through hell, but you've got those, those, those life jackets. You've got those moments, those visas that, that God has said, hey, I'm going to take that impediment and make it a monument. And maybe you need to just take a stone, and these stones are actually made to be written on, and there's Sharpies here. Write what that is. May we never forget God's faithfulness. The little stones in our life that point to what he's done for us, those 10,000 things that maybe we're mindful of three, but may we also never forget that one stone on Easter morning that rolled away our shame now and forevermore. The God who moves mountains, the God who rolls stones, he still turns impediments into monuments today. He still turns the tide. His grace is still a game changer. So tonight to close, I just want to do two things. I want to step back into worship, and as you worship now, in a couple minutes, come up, grab a stone. You can write on it if you want, but let's take it back. Maybe you got four memories. You want four. There's a bunch. Don't worry about it. But come on, let's worship God with our words, and with our actions, and then we'll close in a minute. On a shameful day, died in the sorrow of defeat, but forgiveness was his cry.